Well, happy Mother's Day to all of you. One time in the growing up years, I don't remember the exact date, but my kids had the audacity to ask, when is Kids Day? And we, of course, told them what? Every day day but this one. So, take advantage of this one-day opportunity that should be, you know, you, you ladies, you ought to have at least, you know, four months out of the year or something like that. No amens. Wow. All right, so let's get into our message this morning. I want to lay out for you just a few foundational things to help us kind of maybe, it, it somewhat helps in understanding the, the text or the situation a little bit better. It really has not much to do with where I'm headed as far as my points, but it just helps us kind of uh, uh, under, understand some things, okay? So this is, this is there, there are no blanks on your page for this. Um, for those of you who like to fill in the blanks and think you've uh, accomplished much when you fill in the final blank on the page, which you have. Okay, so a couple of things, just kind of some situational things that help on this. First of all, uh, this event, the feeding of the 5,000, sometimes we, when we read through the Bible, we think, you know, everything is sequential. You know, that This event happened, and then boom, this event happened, and then boom, this event happened. Well, the feeding of the 5,000 took place somewhere from six months to a year after the events in chapter 5. Okay, so that's the first thing, that this event kind of took place six months to a year after the events in chapter 5. That's why verse 1 starts with, uh, after this. And then in verse 4, it says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. And so that gives us, if we knew the, the, the pattern or the, or the calendar or something like that, if the feast in chapter 5, verse 1, is the feast of booths, is somebody whispering? Did y'all hear that or am I hearing voices? Because I'm really concerned right now. Okay, okay. I think it was the baptistry mic. I think it's still on. So if y'all can turn the mic off in the baptistry, that'd be, that'd be wonderful. <laughs> you know, when, when you turn a certain age, hearing voices is, is an option. <laughs> it, it is an option. Okay, pressing on. So if the feast in chapter 5, verse 1 is the feast of booths, then that's at least six months that have passed to the Passover that's in verse 4 of chapter 6. If the feast in 5-1 is the Passover, then you have a year's time in between there. And the reason I say that, it kind of helps us understand that, is when in verse 2 it says, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. If you think sequential kind of uh, Book of John kind of stuff, then you think, well, he only said like three, he only did like three or four miracles up to this point. And that's not true. In fact, later on in John 21, we see that John says, now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were there even, were were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself would not contain the books that could be written. And so if the world could not contain the record of Jesus' miracles, that's a lot of miracles. Okay, and so up to this point, there's probably a bunch of miracles that we just don't have a record of that these people are witnessing, hearing about, and really kind of getting onto the Jesus train, as they say. 
Okay, the second thing is this event took place after a full day of teaching and healing from Jesus. Reading only John's account, by the way, this is the only miracle that's in all four Gospels, okay? Every other miracle is in one or two or three or something like that, but this is the only one that's in all four Gospels. So reading only John's account gives you the idea that feeding of the 5,000 happens almost immediately after they get off the boat. Okay, so we see this in in verse 1. It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing, and then Jesus went on the mountain, and there he sat down with the disciples, and boom, there's people there. The reason for that is basically, I think, one of John's intentions for writing the book is to just give some extra details that were not in the other accounts. John was not trying to give a detailed play-by-play account of the event, in other words. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record that when the crowds come to Jesus and the apostle, Jesus spends literally the whole day teaching the people and healing those in need of healing. So, for instance, in Luke 9, verse 11, it says, When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. And so we know Jesus taught and healed for a good chunk of the day because, again, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record that the feeding of the 5,000 did not take place until the evening. In Matthew's account, even, the disciples tell Jesus that the day is now over which is basically kind of giving the idea that the sun was probably starting to set. Say, what's the point of that? Why why are you giving us that information? Well, basically, this is not an excuse for bad behavior. We're going to see that the, the apostles flub this one. They don't pass the test that Jesus throws in their general direction. But you have some very tired apostles at this point. In Mark and Luke's account, it says that the apostles had just returned from Jesus, if you remember the story, empowering them to heal and sending them out to go through the villages healing and that sort of thing. Probably, you know, several days of this going on, and then they come back and they give the report, and Jesus even says in Mark 6.31, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Even Jesus notices, hey, you guys are tired. So let's get in the boat, let's go to a desolate place, because you need some rest. And so they they get on the boat, and they're probably still swapping stories of things they did in the villages. Yeah, you know, I was talking to this demon-possessed man, and you know, and other things like that. And then probably a few of them said, man, I cannot wait for this boat to get to shore, and we get a time to relax. Can you imagine while they're on this boat and heading to the other side of the sea, and as they're kind of pulling up to the sea, they all of a sudden see thousands of people waiting for them. There had to have been some deep groans coming from the boat as it was coming to shore. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Can these people just leave us alone? To quote Pastor Kent Hughes, Jesus and his apostles were being peopled to death. How many of you understand what it means to be peopled to death? Absolutely. So, they essentially in being very tired, again, it's not an excuse, but it is an opportunity to understand more of why they had the reaction they did to these things. So, let's start with the actual sermon, and let's look at the enormous opportunity, okay? 
What exactly is the opportunity that the apostles and the people missed in this scenario? And that is this, they missed out on an opportunity to trust in the all-sufficient God. Or more, more precise, they missed out on an opportunity to trust in the all-sufficient Son of God. So letter number A is this, how did Jesus show himself as the all-sufficient Son of God? So in this miracle of feeding the 5,000, how did Jesus show himself to be sufficient? Number one is this, Jesus showed he was not hindered by time. There are, or there is two ways Jesus does this, okay? And there's one that's a more obvious kind of way, and then there's another one that's a little more subtle. So let's first look at the obvious way. In verse 5, it says, Jesus lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that, we may, that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. That word knew, there's different words for knew or know, to know something in the Greek, and there's one word, gnosko, or gnosko, depends on what year you took Greek, but uh, they pronounce it differently in some divide there. But anyway, uh, uh, that word, John, kind of has to do with a, kind of a, a, a uh, progressive kind of knowledge. In other words, when you first marry, you think you know your spouse, but in 10 years, you know them better, Hopefully. In 20 years, you know them better. In 30 years, you know them better, and, and those kinds of things. That's a progressive knowledge. But Ido is the word that's used here, and it basically has to do with comprehensive or absolute knowledge. And this basically has to do with Jesus' absolute knowledge of things. When he said, for he himself knew what he would do, he knew what was going to happen next. As a for instance, in Luke 9, verses 21 and 22, it says, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And you say, wait a minute. All he had to do is be a really good study of the Old Testament, because there are a lot of prophecies in there that say these kinds of things. But really, the concept of rising again on the third day was... Pretty, pretty sketchy, pretty tricky. And so Jesus really has shown himself to know things before they happen. Here's a for instance in this situation. Jesus knew what he would do even before he received bread and fish from the child that he was going to feed these people. So that's the obvious way we see that Jesus is showing that he is not hindered by time. He doesn't have to wait to see what finds out, what comes about. He doesn't have to kind of just sit back and hope for something to take place. But then the second thing, the subtle way is in verse 11, it says, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. This word for fish, basically, if you talk about the fish of the day or something like that, the, the Jews were not into sushi. We kind of joked about this in the office, you know, about what was the fish exactly like or something like that. And so the Jews were not into, in, into sushi, so usually they would preserve their fish, usually pickling their fish, you know, or placing those fish in salt. 
And then kind of these, uh, these loaves of bread that we're talking about, don't think big, you know, Panera-type loaves. We're talking about small cakes. Barley, by the way, was the, 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 the bread of the very poor people. So it's a beautiful picture of offering our, the poorest offering to the Lord, that kind of thing. But, but that aside, how many of you have ever pickled something? I wondered if we had anybody who pickled something. You guys are really cool. Pickling is not something done much these days. How long does it take to pickle something? Well, I searched the almighty Google, and Google said that when it comes to pickling fish, it takes approximately five days at minimum to pickle raw fish. Okay, how many of you bake bread? From scratch or something like that. Okay, wait, can you raise your hands again? Okay, honey, can you? write down their names. Hold on, raise your hands again, please. My, my wife has got to get a record here. You know, call. Eight five, I'm, I'm taking a risk here. 850-499-8771. That's my cell phone number. Give me a call. We'll bring the butter and the honey. Okay? But let us know when you're making bread, because that's an amazing thing. God blessed us with bread. Amen. But, uh, but, but, but in the situation of baking bread, you know that that takes time for it to rise and other things like that. And so I say all that just to say that Jesus just wills it and pickled fish show up. There was no process to have them ready. Jesus wills it, he gives thanks, and boom, there's bread. He is not limited by time, folks. He's not saying, okay, I know you folks got to wait a minute, but the the fish, I promise you, are, are, are in the pickling juice right now. He is not hindered by or limited by time. Second thing is, Jesus showed that he is not hindered by a lack of resources. Now, hypothetically, if the crowd numbered 20,000, that's kind of the number that's thrown out there because you have 5,000 men, that's the only official number that we have, but you think with women and children, it could be anywhere between 15 to 30,000 people. Okay, and just to give you an idea of what that is, uh, Niceville High School football stadium's capacity is 5,000. Okay, and so you have 20,000 people. We'll just throw that number out as if we know for sure that that's the number. And let's just say each person ate three fish and two cakes. That's 60,000 fish and 40,000 loaves of bread before the leftovers, which was 12 basketfuls. So what did Jesus start with? Well, according to verse 9, it says, there's a boy here who had five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Two fish to 60,000 fish. I asked my wife last night, because I, I, I do not do math, but that is around a three million percent increase. Five barley loaves to 40,000. That's a big increase too. You know, and, and, and those who are liberal theologians, naturalists, you would call them, basically, they, they have made some attempts to describe this situation as, well, everybody had bread and fish, and the moral of the story is to share. And so everybody just kind of, instead of keeping their food to themselves, they shared with one another, and then they put it all together in a kind of a community basket at the end. And the reason they make this false conclusion about what happened is because they believe that Jesus was hindered by a lack of resources. He's not. 
There's, you know, they think that there's no way that fish and bread just started showing up. But they did. Jesus showed as the Son of God that he was able to create anything, anytime, anywhere. The third thing is, Jesus showed that his love slash compassion is not hindered by a lack of faith or knowledge. Now, when I preached a few weeks ago on getting Jesus right, I pointed out in John 2, it says that many believed in Jesus' name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And it's very interesting that the statement after that is, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew their hearts were not with him. Our passage this morning begins in a similar way. It's almost like, well, can I just take my sermon notes here and just apply them to this situation? Because it's very, very similar. But, but uh, you know, the, verse 2 begins with, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing to the sick. And what did Jesus do with this? Did Jesus roll his eyes? You know, oh, here we go again. Get back in the boat, guys. Get back in the boat. They're just here to see me be a trick pony or something like that. Let's just get back in the boat and go someplace else. Well, the answer to that is no. Because of his compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, which is what Mark's account says, Jesus spent the day performing miracles for their benefit. He spent the day teaching them the Word of God, and he finishes the day with miraculously feeding them. Jesus was not hindered by the apostles getting the test wrong, or by the people's placing too much focus on signs and wonders. Jesus was not hindered by these things, and we ought to understand this. We ought to get this, especially today. I mean, this, this may not be everyone's story necessarily, but today we honor this kind of love that we have displayed for us through our mothers, right? I mean, how many days go by when, you know, mothers face thankless jobs? The many, many thankless days when, you know, you have snot-nosed kids, then you have snot-nosed teenagers, and in our case, we have snot-nosed adults. Yet our moms loved us. And yet a mother's love, not to, give, not to give the mothers the big head in the room now, but a mother's love is infinitely small in comparison to this unhindered love Jesus shows to his apostles and to the people and ultimately to us. His love is not hindered by our lack of faith in him, nor by our lack of knowing all that there is to know about him. Letter number B, how did the apostles and the people miss out on an opportunity to trust the all-sufficient Son of God? Number one, Philip failed the test because he was stuck in the external evidence and not in the proven Son of God. Jesus looks up and sees a conundrum. He had been meeting the physical and spiritual needs of thousands of people for most of the day, 
and now it was time for dinner. And they didn't really have enough food, did they? So instead of immediately taking action to fix the problem, he hands the problem to his disciples, starting with Philip. Verse 5 says, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And where I was sitting, someone behind me kind of chuckled when that verse was read, because you understand the situation. You know, here's Jesus saying, okay, Philip, now is your opportunity, Philip, to shine. Jesus said this to put your faith to the test, Philip. Jesus wants to show you how trusting in him actually makes a difference in a person's life. So what kind of answer did Philip give? He could have said, you know, Lord, there was this wedding in Cana, I don't know if you remember it, where you turned water into really good wine, which in the real world, Jesus, I don't know if you know this, but that takes a long time, longer than pickled fish and bread loaves. So there's no doubt you can just zap out some sandwiches if you want to, Lord. Here, please. Don't put, this, don't put this job on me because I can't do anything about it, but you can. You are the all-sufficient Savior. But Philip gives the non-answer answer, right? He doesn't tell Jesus how he would solve the problem, does he? He doesn't give the problem back to Jesus, recognizing Jesus is all-sufficient. No, Philip just shares how it is mathematically impossible to solve the problem. Another reason not to like math. Verse 7 says, Philip answered him, 200 denarii, which is essentially eight months' wages, okay? Worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, this was a true statement. Just wasn't the answer Jesus was looking for. Point number two. Andrew was same song, second verse. Verse 8 and 9, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Andrew would have been an improvement in the, to the situation if it weren't for his last comment, right? I mean, finding a boy with bread and fish meant he had ventured into the crowd. He checked out people's lunch sacks, you know, or something like that. He was, he was looking for anyone that could help that kind of thing. He was putting some effort into it, but he, but he finishes his statement with, but what are they for so many? In other words, Andrew, just like Philip, collapses under the pressure of only trusting in the externals. Then you have the rest of the apostles who, in other accounts, for instance, in Mark 6, verses 35 and 36, it says, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And here's where the tired kicks in. These guys are tired, they're exhausted, they're only fleshly and thinking fleshly solutions and other things like that. And basically all they say is, this is not our problem. Send them off. Take care of themselves. And so after failing the test to give the problem back to the all-sufficient Son of God, Jesus takes it back himself, doesn't he? 
and gives thanks for a poor kid's meal. And you can imagine, can you think about that? Here's Jesus, he says, give it to me. You know, in all the movies where he's speaking with a British accent, he holds it up in the air, you know, and, you know, and he says, you know, praise the Lord who brings forth bread upon the earth, you know, that sort of thing. And when it comes down, of course, there's 90 fish and 90 bread loaves and everything like that, and, and where there used to only be a little and, and those kinds of things. I love how the movie does that. That is wonderful. But you can almost see this. Jesus takes these baskets or whatever, and he gives thanks. And the apostles are going, what? What in the world's going on right now? I mean, didn't you hear us, Jesus? Eight months of wages could not solve this problem. And if it could, we don't have eight months' wages in the money bag. So Jesus ends his prayer of thanksgiving, and an amazing miracle happens despite the disciples' failure to trust in their Lord. But what about the people? And this is point number three. The people only wanted a prophet that would meet their physical needs, not their spiritual ones. The people had just experienced a miracle that proved Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus gave thanks, and the fish and bread come from nothing, literally. And their reaction was, this is the guy it's going to keep food forever in our stomachs. This is the guy that's going to set us free from Rome. Let's make him king, whether he likes it or not, because that's the idea here. It says it's kind of a mob was developing, so the, the people are getting really rowdy and ready to, one of the reasons Jesus left, because the situation was spiritually disgusting, well, one of the reasons Jesus left was there was a mob coming for him. And folks, that is a bad reaction. That is a bad reaction. A good reaction would be something like Peter's reaction to Jesus' miracle of the provision of the fish in the boat. Remember the story? Jesus walks up to the boat and tells Peter, cast your nets out for a catch. And they're like, we've been working all night. Lord, we're so tired. You know what? But for you, we'll do this. So if you have your Bible, turn over to Luke chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 4 through 10. Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 10. You all follow along. It says, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, and here's the right reaction to, the, to this. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. 
the right reaction to discovering because of a miracle that you are in the presence of the Son of God when He makes Himself known as God in the flesh is repentance. It is a a deep, deep reverence for what just took place. It is not seeing Him as some sort of tool. Well, he, He fixed my hungry stomach. Oh, I wonder if I aimed it in this direction at my marriage. What can he do there? Oh, wait, wait, my, my, finance, my finances aren't so good over here. Let me point the tool over there and see what happens there. Peter didn't say, we need to buy more boats. We could have a real industry here. The right reaction is to know you are in the presence of your maker and to be broken and repent. The right reaction would never seek to make him king because of what just happened and you had the right reaction to it. You already know he is the king. So let's really challenge ourselves this morning to have a right reaction to what we've just learned this morning. Here are three final points and the plane will be on the ground. Number one. Let's first repent because to be in the presence of Christ is to be in the presence of the Creator. There should have been 5,000 voices crying out loud in unison, depart from us, for we are sinful men, O Lord. They should have been just parroting what Peter said in that previous situation. They should have just been saying, depart from us, Lord. You got to be kidding me? You just created something. rather than a mob trying to take Jesus by force and make him king. Let's not make the same mistake in blasphemy, see, blasphemously, I knew I'd have trouble with that word when I put it in there, blasphemously see Jesus as a means to an end. Number two, let's not get bogged down in the external evidence, but let's get bogged down in the all-sufficient king. Now, for some of you, it's no doubt. We've got enough people in here, statistically, for some of you, your situation is bleak right now. You are facing such monumental problems that you absolutely can sympathize with these apostles. You can say, man, I know what it means to be tired and just care about one thing, and that is, can you just please cause these people to go away? Can you please cause the cancer to go away? Can you please cause the, 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 the wrecked marriages or the, you know, the wrecked finances or whatever the situation, can you please just make it stop? They're crunching the numbers, they're looking at the 20,000 people, and the numbers are not working. But in their pride, in their pride, they could not get past the impossibility, impossibility of it all because they could not look past their problems to the Savior. You give me a job, Jesus, okay, I'm going to try to figure out how to do this job. It's impossible. There's no way to fix it. White flag, white towel, done. In their pride, they could not get past the impossibility of it all 
because they were not looking to their savior. They were not saying, you are the all-sufficient king. You are the only one who could handle something like this. Oh God, I have trusted you for however long this tragedy has been around my life, and I feel like my soul is being sucked away from me, but Lord, you are the all-sufficient king. Here you go. And you say, how do I do that? I mean, you just said we were to say, get away from me, Lord, because I am a sinner. How am I saying, get away from me, Lord, but come here, Lord, and help me, please? How on earth am I supposed to do that? And that is the final point, number three, and that is this. Remember, Jesus showed that his love and compassion is not hindered by lack of faith or knowledge. I think it's a beautiful contrast that at the end of the story with Peter and the fish in the boat and that sort of thing, it says, Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And then after that, Peter's with Christ for life. And he fumbles and stumbles through it all, of course. He does have a shoe-shaped mouth. But Jesus says, do not be afraid from now on, you'll be catching men. And the only way to catch men, folks, is to have Jesus relying on him, trusting in him, being enabled by his power to share the glorious gospel so that folks will come and be saved. And so what essentially Jesus is saying there is that, Peter, you gave the right answer. Get away from me, Lord, I am a sinner. I'm going to be with you now, and you will be catching men. But the end of the story of the feeding of the 5,000 in verse 15 says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus had nothing to do with the situation. So let's not in our pride say, I can handle it, I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, blah, 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 blah. And just look at the impossibility of the situation and just quit. That's not what Jesus is asking of us. Jesus is calling us to trust in him. To endure through whatever we might be going through or will go through. But to always be looking to and placing our lives in the very capable hands of our all-sufficient Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to experience you as the bread of life. We thank you, Lord, that you are not the bread of death, but that by placing our trust in you as Savior and King and Lord and guide and friend, all of those names that you call us to trust in, O oh God, then we experience life and life eternal. And I pray for those who are suffering in our congregation right now, Lord. Whether it's through physical suffering or disease or something like that, Lord. Perhaps it is a, a relational thing and there's a crumbling marriages and other things, oh God. There's division in, in the home between parents and children. God, whatever the situation where death has come in and has seemingly taken charge of the situation, I pray that as we trust in you as the bread of life, you would bring life from death. Lord, please forgive us. 
Lord, none of us in here have seen physically with our eyes fish and bread being reproduced, but we have seen your provision. We ask that you would forgive us for taking that opportunity to see your provision and treating you like some tool to just fix our problems. I pray, oh God, that we would repent and that the the cry of our heart would be, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinner, but an equal and an equally uh, important cry would also come from our hearts, and that would be, where else can we go because you have the words of life? So I pray that as we cringe because of our sin, oh God, we would also be free because of your great forgiveness, and we would see your salvation, Lord, and see you bring life to our dead hearts and our dead relationships and our dead conditions and situations, oh God. I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.